All right, good morning, Grace. I'm glad you're here today. Uh, everyone has a weakness. I mean, everyone has that food that if I put it in front of you right now, you're going to eat it. I don't know what yours is. For me, if you put a sausage, egg, and cheese on a jalapeno cheddar biscuit from Whataburger in front of me, I will demolish it in about five and a half seconds, okay? Uh, for my wife, it's creamy jalapeno from uh, Chewy's. I don't know what yours is, but if you would, could you imagine with me that thing that you are almost powerless against? What if I said, if you won't eat that food for 90 days, I'll give you $10 million? Immediately, what would happen is there would be this surge of excitement. Oh, I can totally do that. $10 million? Are you kidding me? I could do almost anything for that kind of money. But let's just say, for instance, it's day 83, all right, and it's been a long day at work, and you drive by a Chewy's, and it catches your eye, and you remember that taste. Oh, man, that sweet taste. I mean, that perfect blend of spice and ranch with salty and flavorful chips. I think just by doing this illustration, I'm on the hook for buying my wife some of this on the way home. But let's just say, again, it's, it's day 83, you've had a terrible day at work, the kids are driving you crazy, or the coworkers who are acting like kids are driving you crazy, and you just want to feel a little bit better. You just want a little bit of relief, you just want something to take the edge off. And there it is, right? On day 83, there's this choice, there's this moment. Am I going to tell myself no? And in, the, in that moment, there's a lot of mental math happening. It's happening in split seconds because there's a lot of values and desires that are colliding in your brain and your heart. For one, you love creamy jalapeno. I mean, it tastes great. But two, there's like this promise of $10 million. But then maybe you start wondering, maybe doubting, I don't know that Robert has $10 million. I mean, I've seen, I've seen that 14-year-old truck he drives. I'm not sure he's sitting on 10 mil. I mean, can he be really trusted? But if, right, if you were to believe that it was true and verifiable and legit, then ultimately every sane and rational person would say, that's just too valuable. It's $10 million. I mean, as good as creamy jalapeno is from Chewy's, right? We would say, that's a bad trade. There's too much on the line. There's too much value to be lost there. And so today we're wrapping up our series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we've done love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and now we're on to self-control. And it's going to be my premise with you today that our struggle with self-control has more to do with a misaligned value system before it's ever a discipline issue. That self-control right at the heart of it is about seeing the real value of things and then responding accordingly. The problem, though, is that we have a really hard time assessing value. Our hearts are more bent towards the deeds of the flesh, that old man, that old woman that lives inside of us. There's still this residue of deep brokenness within us, a self that's at war with itself sometimes. We're, and frankly, we're just really accustomed and have a lot of practice making bad trades. You see, I, I've seen too many times in my life that it's a misaligned value system and simply doubting or flat-out unbelief in the promises, the things that have been promised to me that have me saying yes to the beast that barks and bellows to be satisfied and placated and appeased. So the topic of self-control, it is, it is robust. There are a lot of different rabbit trails we could go down today, but here's what I'd like to try to accomplish with you today. My goal, I want to define self-control, what it is and what it isn't. I want you to see the two words that the Bible uses uh, for self-control. 
And then I want us to ask, what is, what is really spirit-fueled self-control? Because we'll see that there's a couple of kind of counterfeits that exist in our world. I want to give a brief overview of a couple of passages that I think are well worth your time on this topic. And then I want you to see how Jesus, our Savior, exemplifies this characteristic. And then, like always, I want us at the end to ask this question, how do I get more of that fruit? I mean, how do I get more of that? As we begin, let me remind you of the larger context of uh, Galatians 5. I think it's important. We're told that we bring deeds of the flesh to the party. But we've also been promised the Holy Spirit lives inside of us as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're told that if we will walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the deeds of the flesh. Instead, His Spirit will produce fruit, much fruit, and more fruit. And one beautiful aspect of that fruit is self-control. So let's start with what it is and what it isn't. The word that Paul uses in Galatians 5 for self-control is really a, it's a combination of two smaller words kind of jammed together. Uh, the two words are ego and krat. So ego as in self and krat as in like autocrat or master or ruler. It literally, the word means kind of self-mastery. Sometimes in the uh, Greek language at that time and other literature, it's used of an emperor who does not let his um, private interest influence the way he governs the people, right? He's asserting power or management over his desires, lust, emotions, feelings, behaviors. And so this word really is about governing of one's desires. It's governing one's self. But there's another word that uh, is used in the New Testament for self-control. And sometimes it's translated self-control, and sometimes it's translated uh, sober-minded or, sober or sound judgment. And it's this picture of, right, sound mind, seeing things clearly, mental alertness. This is the word you see in 1 Peter when, when Peter reminds the disciples to be self-controlled or sober-minded and alert because the enemy is prowling around like a lion. And so these two words, I think they give us a kind of a fuller picture of this concept of self-control from the Bible. And honestly, I think they work together. You see, seeing properly, being sober-minded and alert ought to lead to right thinking, which ought to lead to right acting. It's thinking soundly that leads to the inner strength that helps us know the difference between fool's gold and real gold. Maybe knowing the difference between $10 million and creamy jalapeno ranch. Right? So much of self-control is about paying attention. Before you need the strength to hold yourself back, you'll also need to be able to see, really see. Right? In other words, you'll need to be, uh, to be able to see value properly and then kind of act based on the truth of what you're seeing. And again, these judgments, they happen in like split seconds sometimes. So these are the two words that inform us on what kind of self-control means in the Bible. But I also want to talk a little bit about the, the kind of counterfeits or, or um, the subtle nuances that we see in our world, right? We, on one side of our world, we see this to be true, right? It's, it's built on instant gratification, right? Easy, all the time, everywhere. Do, what, do whatever makes you feel the happiest, right? Do what feels good. But there's also this other growing trend of, you know, call it self-help, call it motivation speaker, call it whatever you want to that's just do it, set your alarm, rigid self-discipline, you can do this. But underlying much of that is still motivation towards self. It's perhaps self-preservation, self-success, self-righteousness because I can do it and you can't. Or maybe just self-serving wrapped up in something that looks like self-control when you really dig down into it. 
You see, the late, the late Tim Keller said this, the counterfeit, the fake version of self-control is willpower through pride or through more functional idols. He would say that, look, self-control is not something you do for yourself. It only comes when you want something more than yourself, more than your own happiness, more than your own pride, more than your own ego. And it's a, it's a subtle kind of difference. In a, it's, there's some nuance there of this modern version of self-control. I think one of the examples you might see of this is in the diet and exercise camp, right? Um, wake up early, do your workouts, eat your green powder, drink your green powder, eat these carbs, not those carbs. I don't know, I'm lost. I don't know what I'm supposed to eat these days, okay? But some, and hear me clearly, workout warriors, some of what's at the bottom of that is I want to be seen as a disciplined person. I'm self-righteous because I figured out how to win this game. A pride that I can do this maybe even in my own power. I want to be this kind of person. Or sometimes simply just the vanity of I want to look good in a swimsuit. Now I'm all for taking care of your body, exercising, all those things. Okay, don't send me emails about this. Okay, but we have to be careful. There are some real motivations underneath sometimes this discipline and perceived self-control. Many times what we want underneath that is still the things of self not necessarily the things of God. And so it, what looks like self-control is really just me controlling things to get what I really want. It's a means to my own personal ends, maybe not God's ends. So, right, self-control, not just simply saying no. I think it's a kind of saying no that's built on a belief in the promises of God and relying on his power to accomplish that. Right? We have to remember, I think this, we can make this um, inference from the scripture, that if I can do this in my own power, it is a fruit of Robert, not a fruit of the Spirit. And so I'm going to need to be enabled in kind of a supernatural way to get some of these things done. Okay, so we've seen the concept of self-control, right? Those two words based in the scriptures. We've talked a little bit about the counterfeits. I think we could define it this way. The best definition I could find for you of self-control came from Jerry Bridges. He wrote a book on the fruit of the Spirit, and he defines it this way. Self-control is the exercise of inner strength under the direction of sound judgment that enables us to do, think, and say the things that are pleasing to God. And I might add, fueled by value given and attributed to the right things. Fueled by a lack of self, not a serving of self masquerading as discipline. All right, now that we've defined it, let's take a look at some, again, not all, not an exhaustive list of some important passages on self-control that I think are worth your time this morning. The first of those is I want you to see the dangers of a lack of self-control. Proverbs 25, 28, Solomon says this, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Without walls in those day and ages, you were defenseless. The invader had full access. You are easy pickings. A city without a wall is not a city for long. It's why Nehemiah wept when he heard that his hometown was without walls. Walls were the difference between a flourishing city and a ravaged one. Having a strong wall meant you could sleep at night, knowing the attackers are at bay. Without it, you're open to disaster and ruin. And I I love this. It's a great picture Because in the same way, human beings, you know, without self-control, isn't a human being for very long. 
We need walls and boundaries around us to flourish in life. It's just a true statement. They've, they've actually done sociological research on preschoolers playing on different kinds of playgrounds, ones that have some kind of physical boundaries or fences and others that don't. And wouldn't you know it, they find out that, that when there's no boundaries around the playground, the kids hover close to their teachers, there's more anxiety and less freedom of play. But, but the ones that have fences lead to this open expression, this freedom, this harmony, all these good things with preschoolers. We need this. You, you do not want to be a wallless city. It does not end well, and there are real dangers, the Bible says, to a lack of self-control. The next verse I'd love for you to see is, it comes from the Apostle Paul. It's a very familiar passage to some of you, but in 1 Corinthians 9, he says this, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Paul uses this metaphor of an athlete. They exercise self-control in all things. And if you've, if you've ever known a high-level athlete, they have to say no in some very ruthless and merciless fashions to get to their goals, right? Their calendars, their, their diet, all the things. But don't miss that there's a value system at play here, Paul says. They're after something. They're after the prize. Don't be mistaken. They value that so highly that they're willing to do all the things necessary to try to attain their goal. The sacrifice of all those things kind of pales in comparison, right? There's a value system that's properly aligned. They're striving towards certain goals. The Bible also tells us that we all need self-control. I, I love Titus chapter 2. Four times and three, to three different groups of people, he says, I urge you, be self-controlled. He tells the old men this, the young men this, and then the women who are teaching other women to be self-controlled. But listen to Paul's summary of that, of that section of Scripture in verse 11, Titus 2, 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What's the motivation? What's the fuel for renouncing godliness and living a self-controlled life? Did you catch it? God has appeared, and he has brought salvation. And it's so good and so valuable to me that it motivates me to live and act a certain way. So not only do we see those verses, but if you study the life of our Savior, just a quick overview of a couple of times in his life where he demonstrates this characteristic of self-control. Matthew 4, love it. It's, it's one of his, it's the narrative where Jesus is in the wilderness facing temptation from the evil one. Okay, and it's a great model for us. He battles temptation with, a, uh, with truth and a rightly aligned value system. And so when you hear your Savior say, man does not live on bread alone, after he's been offered a meal, after 40 days of no meals, he's saying, there is something more valuable to me than satisfying my stomach. He's saying, there's, something, there's still something more satisfying to me than that. I'm after $10 million. I'm not after creamy jalapeno ranch. Luke 9, 51, I love it. It says um, that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And I love the way it says that because he's like, my, his eyes went somewhere. He set his face towards the goal that he had, the mission that he had been given. 
And he was not going to be deterred from that. And he knew, he knew it was going to be painful. He knew it was going to be the least pleasurable experience of his life. But he set his face towards something. He started to see what was out there. The conclusion of that process is Matthew 26. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, I would rather not do this. This is going to be terrible. Not my will, but yours. In other words, I so highly value the mission that I've been given that I'm willing to do this. I won't use my power to thwart it. I'll see it all the way through. I so highly value the will of God. I had the, um, I love, the Garden of Gethsemane, I, I, I had the privilege of being there last fall. And in a, in a moment, about, we had about 20 minutes there just of quiet, and I sat next to a tree in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I just kind of marveled at my Savior. It was one of those moments that made the trip completely worth it for me. I'm just, I'm having a moment, it's just me and God, and I'm, I'm just saying, God, I want to be like your son, Jesus. I want to be the kind of guy that says, not my will, but yours. I want, I find myself wanting me so bad. My fingers are so tapped tightly wrapped around my will for my life. Would you make me the kind of man that says, not my will, but yours? And so we see, we see Jesus exemplifying self-control. And these are just a few examples. And again, my assertion is that he was able to do that because he rightly saw value. He had the, the right value attributed to the right things, and it made it natural for him to say no to himself. So we see it. We see this concept all over the scriptures. We've seen our Savior who exemplifies it. And I think the, not, the, the natural and kind of right question for us is, how do I get more of that in my life? I mean, how, how, do, I, how do I do that? I know there's a spirit element at play here. And so I, I know I just can't muster this on my own. How do I do it? I, I'd love to keep hammering the same application strategy we've been working for the last few weeks I think the first thing you could do is you could know where you are. You could do a fruit inspection. You could do a fruit check, right? I've asked you to do this every week because I think it's the natural and right starting point for how do I apply the fruit of the Spirit is I got to know where I'm at. I got to know how I'm doing here. And if you're like me, there's probably a couple areas you're killing it. And if you're also like me, there's probably a couple areas that are killing you. Everybody seems to have that place where they where their self rules and they're out of control, right? And in this fruit inspection, you might need to be painfully and ruthlessly honest with yourself. You might need to go the extra step of being painfully and ruthlessly honest with a, a trusted friend and, and name these areas so that you might take the, the, that step of naming them out loud, those places in thought and action and word where you can least control yourself, the places where you look up and say, I don't know how that just happened. And while you're digging around in there and you're inspecting things and you're looking under the hood, you could maybe try to find the root. You could maybe try to find the, the engine that's really driving that train because most, more often than not, it's a misaligned value system where it's us kind of believing a lie that it will, this will somehow satisfy us or bring us more joy. I think one of the best things you could do today as we kind of wrap up this Fruit of the Spirit series is to have a level of self-awareness that acknowledges I have some area that is out of control. My self 
is running rampant here. It's connected deep in my unique flavor of brokenness and bents, and I need a clear understanding of my motivations. I need to know why I keep saying yes to this thing. I need to know why I keep saying yes to this kind of tyranny of self. I don't know where yours is. Here's a, here's a short list. Some of this may cover most of us, not an exhaustive list at all, but for some people it might be food. That might be it. Many of you, we are not treating the temple of the Holy Spirit well. For the sake of your taste buds, you are trashing the temple on an ongoing basis. For some of you, it might be a sexual temptation. You know what the Lord requires of you. It's just not a high enough value in your heart. Your body and your passions rule you and master you. It may be your digital device or some form of entertainment. If you're like me, you can pick up your phone for no reason and all of a sudden 45 minutes is gone. Maybe pride. Maybe your pride is running rampant. You can't say no to yourself at all. You're always right. You're never the problem. If the world would just do it your way, everything would be great. Your pride and your self-righteousness rule your life. It's a ruthless tyrant you serve. For some of you, it might be your tongue. You can't stop putting your foot in your mouth. That juicy piece of gossip is always going to get shared. Or you can't stop yelling at referees at your, youth, uh, your kids' youth games. Is that just me? Okay. Maybe for you, it's greed or a lack of contentment. You just want more and more. You can't tell yourself no. The Amazon man, he knows you by name because you love that little hit of buying something that maybe this will make me feel good and enough is never quite enough. Friends, it could be so many things. I mean, we're humans after all. We will come up with endless ways to serve ourself. But I want you to have a beautiful harvest of self-control in the next year and the next decades with the Spirit's help, but the starting point of that is knowing where you're at and figuring out what, what is it in me that is causing me to value this over that. I think the second application for us this morning, again, broken record here a little bit, but it's the only application we get from Galatians 5. We're told to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the deeds of the flesh. Right? And Pastor Ray, a couple weeks ago, right, I've, I've repented. I'm facing this direction. I'm walking a certain way. And as I do that, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do my part. I'm trying to cooperate with the Spirit's work in my life. And much, many a time that looks like using the tools the Lord has given me. The three tools I try to use the most in my life as I think about walking by the Spirit. I shared them with you last week. I'll share them with you again. Pray, memorize, belief. Pray, memorize, belief. First, you could pray. What would happen if every day you got up and said, Lord, help me. I can't do this on my own. What if you prayed, Lord, would you get me to lunchtime? And then at 12.01, God, would you get me to 1 p.m.? I need that kind of daily bread, that kind of ongoing connection because this thing is ruling me in some way. You could pray, God, help me to see clearly here. Help me to see what I'm really looking at. I'm, I'm, I'm so blinded by the me that's always driving the train that I can't see what you really want from me here. And as you say those kinds of prayers, you could also memorize. You might need to have something on loop, something on repeat. Maybe it's about your particular area that you, you're struggling with in self-control. 
It might be the thing that kind of is constantly going on in the background. Friends, one of the very first verses I ever memorized, thanks to my grandmother, was Psalm 119.11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. My mind and my heart are saturated with the promises of God so that in those split seconds where these decisions are happening, sometimes even unconsciously, that I would devalue the things of the earth and rightly value the promises of God. And as you pray and as you memorize, I think the rubber hits the road for a lot of us. The real struggle of self-control, the real miracle the Lord needs to do in us is we need to believe some things in some deep and profound and kind of convincing ways. I want to remind you of the, you know, the elite Olympic athlete, right? They do not do that because they're virtuous. They do that because they're after a prize. They go through all the training, all the pain, all the early mornings, all the workouts, all the lack of food because they want the pleasure of the prize, the pleasure of that championship or that, that ring or that gold medal. And that's far superior to them that they're willing to sacrifice all those things. The power, friends, for self-control comes from seeing the prize and then believing that that prize is worth it. And I think one of the main challenges of the Christian life is to consistently do this kind of mental math and really believe that this purity, this, this honesty, this integrity, this area where I tell myself no has so much value. If you'll allow me, I'd love to kind of share a personal story from my own life about how I saw, I, I've seen this kind of prayer, word of God, and belief kind of all line up to kind of help me begin, and I mean begin, to win a self-control battle. Part of my story is that high-speed internet and unfettered access to that hit me in college. That's, where I, that's how old I was when that cultural moment happened. And for like many young men of my generation, it hit me like a ton of bricks. For the first time in my life, images, videos were always there, always around, always free, and only two clicks away. And it beat me up, friends. I was a slave to it. It was my master. And as many young men and even old men who battle this and know God has more for them than what, where they're at, I yo-yoed between small successes and abject failure for years. I did all the things, all the accountability groups, read all the books, did all the studies, knew all the right answers, could quote you all the right scriptures. But for me, there was a moment in my mid to late 20s where it all kind of clicked. And I want to be very clear here. The battle is not over for me. It rages on every day. But it was the first time in my life where I felt like I had the right tools in a toolbox. So I'm in mid to late 20s. After almost a decade of slavery, of being totally, totally out of control. And I'm sitting in a random church service at a church you've never heard of with a pastor you've never heard of. And he gets to a certain place in the Bible. And to this day, I, I cannot tell you what that message was about. It had nothing to do with this topic. But I just knew he got to Psalm 16 and God used that passage of scripture to radically alter the way I saw a self-control battle I was having to, I was having to fight. 
He read from Psalm 16, and he's talking about God being our refuge and how our inheritance has fallen in pleasant places. And he gets to the last verse of Psalm 16, and it says this, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And God, in that moment, began to just change the way I saw things. I felt like the Lord was asking me, God, Robert, do you believe that at my right hand are pleasures forevermore? Do you really believe that I could give you a fullness of joy that you've never had ever in your life? Would you, would you for a moment imagine with me that my way is better within the boundaries that Yahweh God has given you? And I, I had this aha moment where I realized that I was not going through a knowing the right thing to do battle. I was going through a value battle, a belief battle. Was I going to believe that, that God's promises from his word to be true? And would I one day at a time, with the help of the Holy Spirit, begin the process of undoing years of not believing him? And replacing it with a belief that he could be trusted and that he had my fullness of joy and my pleasure in mind. And from that point on, friends, my, my prayer life began to shift. I, I, I was the guy that prayed, Lord, take this away from me, and it changed to help me believe you, God. Help me believe you. Convince my, convince my mind and my heart that at your right hand is fullness of joy. Help me believe that the pleasure you offer me is better than the pleasure of a screen. Permission to do the miracle in me, God, help me. Now, I... I don't know if there's an area of your life where you need to apply a principle like that. I don't know what yours is, but what if you believed? I mean, really believed that the Lord's instructions and his loving boundaries are the real place to life and the real place to find fullness of joy and the real place to find pleasures forevermore. And that those other minor kind of satisfactions will begin to lose their luster and they begin to lose some of the power in your life and you're able, maybe a little bit easier to say no because of the power of the Holy Spirit of God living inside you, and you're starting to value the right things the right way. Friends, I, I want to tell you, though, that shame will not motivate you to more self-control. It won't do it. I'm here to tell you, I tried it. There's no long-lasting power in, in that, but there is power in the Holy Spirit of God that might be able to convince me in a moment where it's needed as you repent and as you've cooperated with the Spirit and as you walk with Him and you pray and you memorize and you believe, right, as you pray, God, I can't do this. You're going to have to do this for me. I don't have the strength to pull this off. And as you memorize scriptures that might be on the front of your mind and deep inside your heart, that you might believe, and I mean really believe, that there's greater value on the other side of that thing, and I, would, I will tell myself no for that. C.S. Lewis would say it this way, there's a, there's a better feast available to you than those mud pies in the slum that you keep eating. And as best I can tell, friends, the challenge of my life of following Jesus for the last 30 years and the next 30 or 40 or however many he gives me is, will I believe his promises? Will I believe his promises? Will, I, will my heart place a greater value on the things of the Spirit instead of the deeds of the flesh? And some days man, I feel like I'm doing okay. But there's a lot of other days where I find myself kind of crying out like the father of that demon-possessed boy in Mark 9 where he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief.
Lord, I, I believe, but help, help my unbelief. Friends, the fruit of the Spirit, the reason it's his work, a work of the Holy Spirit and not a work of us, is that your heart is going to have to value things properly. And the Bible tells us that your, your heart is desperately wicked and beyond cure. But it is not beyond the power of the Spirit of God. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, friends. And that miracle he could do is to give you a brand new value system. And you're going you're, you're to need the Lord's help to do this, to see, to really see, and not accept the deeds of the flesh as so satisfying. People of grace, you don't trade $10 million for creamy jalapeno. It's a bad trade. <clears throat> it always will be. But you're going to need, need the Spirit's help in your life to do a miraculous work in your heart to help you say that saying no to myself is worth that and more. That his right hand is unspeakable pleasure and pl joy to the full, and it's worth it. Oh man, that value is so high. There's so much on the line here. I'd, I'd be foolish to keep making that trade. Let me pray for you. God, we, uh, we come to you today and we confess, God, our value systems are so misaligned and there are so many areas of our lives that are got out of control where our, our self is running rampant. But God, you've promised to produce a fruit of self-control in our lives if we will walk by the Spirit. And God, so we, God, I invite you here today to do that work in our hearts, God. We desperately need your help. Would you help us to believe the promises of your word? Would you help us to attribute the right value so that we might so highly value the things of God that I'd, we'd naturally and rightly say no to myself? Spirit, would you do a good work in us? And when you do it, we'll give you the glory. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.